Welcome to Indispensable, where we provide you with evidence-based medication advice so that you can feel empowered about your own health. I'm your host, Anna Barwick, and I'm an experienced clinical pharmacist, academic and PhD candidate. Join me as we hear from the medication experts, pharmacists. Episode 13, Illicit, Substances in Use. Sam Caton Parr is a Northern Territory born, raised and educated pharmacist, currently working in community pharmacy and undertaking his PhD around access to smoking cessation medicines and is the chair of the Health Providers Alliance Northern Territory, as well as the vice president of the South Australia Northern Territory branch of the Pharmaceutical Society of Australia. Sam is a strong advocate for harm minimisation approaches and has delivered education to patients and health professionals around codeine rescheduling, medicinal cannabis, opioid pharmacotherapy and supply programs, performance and image enhancing drugs and culturally safe practice. Sam has also sought to improve the access to medicines by Territorians Living Rough and those in residential rehabilitation and he's currently working on a community naloxone awareness program. Hi, Hi Sam. Hi Anna. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us on the Indispensable podcast. So Sam, you're really an expert um, around harm minimisation in Australia. This is kind of an area that your PhD is focusing on. So can you tell us a little bit about what illicit medications are actually being used in Australia right now? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess to really start that off, um, we have to look at what sort of data sources we often get these from. So the way that we sort of know what listed substances are being used in Australia is uh, mainly through the Australian Household Drug Survey. So they, uh, through the ABS, almost like the census, they just ask a whole bunch of people what substances they're using um, and how they've used it over their lifetime in the last 12 months, um, how they're sort of using it. From that data, we know, and we've known this for for many years, that the number one leader in Australia is always cannabis. Um, It is consistently the most um, uh, used illicit substance. And then sort of below that, over the years, we've seen an increase in the use of cocaine and MDMA, so ecstasy. Um, Again, that's been increasing over the last couple of years. Um, And then sort of in the third uh, category, and by this stage, we're only talking about maybe 1% of the population. Um, You're looking at uh, use of things like methamphetamine or heroin. And the interesting thing around methamphetamine and heroin is that over the last sort of 20, 30 years, we saw this sort of uh, seesaw. So as heroin use increases, methamphetamine use seems to slow down. And then as uh, heroin use decreases, so through prohibition policies or heroin droughts, we start to see an increase in uh, methamphetamine use. And at the moment, we're probably seeing a, um, a rebalancing of that. Um, Beyond that, we start to look at things like uh, prescription medication misuse. We've seen an increase in that over the last 10 years or so. Um, And then sort of at the the bottom end, about 0.1%, of the population, we look at use of more novel substances. So things like LSD, um, performance and image enhancing drugs, other psychotropics. But I think it's also really important to know that a lot of this data is captured from uh, people voluntarily saying what they're using. So there's also a lot of debate about whether these figures truly represent what people are using, particularly in the smaller categories. So for things like performance and image enhancing drugs, um, you know, it stayed, it stayed steady at 0.1% of the population. 
But over the last 10 years, we've seen a 30-fold increase in seizures at the border. And we've seen a lot more sort of people referring to services. So there is some suggestion that on the lower end or the more boutique sort of agents, we, we may see an underrepresentation. But definitely, if we're talking uh, what substances in Australia, obviously, first of all, it's alcohol and tobacco. But then we're really looking at cannabis and then in a very small group, um, uh, probably some, some cocaine, MDMA and methamphetamine use. And so what are some of the common kind of um, issues with, with kind of misusing some of these both, both illicit and legal, um, you know, substances as well? Sure. So there's probably two areas to consider when we think about the harms of this. So there's the harms to the self. So obviously, if we're looking at illicit use of uh, uh, drugs, then those products tend to be manufactured in ways that don't really meet the same standards that we would expect of other products. So there's always the potential for contaminants. So quite often, um, we talk about things like drug overdoses, but in reality, they're more likely to be drug poisonings. So there's a, an agent in there that wasn't expected. And certainly, we're seeing that at the moment in, in the US with uh, fentanyl and a lot of heroin products and, and in cocaine. But also, uh, if the product is what it says it is on the box, there's the risk of overdose, and that can be intentional overdose, so people using quite large amounts of a substance leading to an overdose. Or again, if the product's not of a level that they, or of a strength that they were anticipating, it's, it's an accidental overdose. And by and large, that second category is, is the more common one. Outside of harms to the self, what we're really interested in, particularly what harm minimisation is focused on, is the broader harms to society. So there have been some estimates to say that if you take into account all of the cost to society from illicit drug use, so time off work, incarceration, decreased productivity, counselling, things like this, even just in the Australian economy, it might be 6 to $8 billion a year. So it's, it's, yeah, it's a significant number. And really, that was what sort of born out of the harm minimization movement was this idea of, okay, well, if we accept that people are going to use illicit substances, how can they use it in a way that decreases the risk to themselves? So that's the overdose sort of risk. And in decrease the risk to society, which is around sort of hospitalizations that come from that, and also um, particularly around why people are using drugs and ways to better support them so that they might then uh, not participate in other harmful behavior because unfortunately we do see people who are struggling with substance use disorders who might then undertake criminal behaviour, um, come into contact with the police system and therefore end up incarcerated and that can sort of flow on. Or other people might uh, commit crimes to access finances, to buy drugs. Um, unfortunately, there are a lot of people who then might also uh, participate in sex work and do so in an unregulated manner, which can then lead into harms as well. So it's that much broader concept. So it's not just about the harm harms to the individual from, from doing drugs, which is what um, the, the advertising has been over the last sort of 20 years, you know, don't do this, otherwise you're going to accidentally die of an overdose from something made up in a bathtub. That's definitely a risk. But we just start to think much more broadly now about, well, what's, what are the risks to, to everyone else and to yourself? If you're going to continue to use substances over a period of time, how does one do that in a way that's, that's quite safe or safest as possible? Absolutely. And I mean, like, like you were saying, there's, you know, there's a lot of stigmatisation that kind of comes along with this as well, too. Um, is, you know, has there been some any research that kind of gives a reason why people may turn to, to using substances to kind of, I don't know, is it, is it a coping mechanism? Like, what is the basis of it? 
Sure. So there, there has been quite a bit of uh, research and discussion into this. Uh, quite often when we're looking at people's motivations to do things, it's not just something we can tick and record. It has to be a discussion about how that um, sort of fits into the larger person. Um, I always quite like the analogy of everyone says, you know, why, why is it that people, uh, you know, turn to drugs or use drugs um, I've had two coffees this morning. I'm sure you've had one. We don't seem to talk about the fact that a lot of us can't function without our coffee. Mm. Um, in some people, uh, they might use other substances in place of that or on top of that. We do know that there are predictors uh, like being of a, a low socioeconomic status, uh, being subject to trauma, uh, be it physical or mental trauma, um, emotional abuse. We see intergenerational trauma amongst certain groups of people as well. So really it sort of comes down to that people quite often are, are using substances just to live their lives. They're trying to do what the rest of us are trying to do, which is just live in this world, do the best job we can. And for them, part of that coping strategy tends to be uh, the use of, of illicit substances. I mean, in Australia particularly, we talk about, um, you know, oh, we're worried about methamphetamine, we're worried about people using heroin, when by and large it's alcohol that causes the most societal problems and problems to the health system, but that's that's legal. So that's that's just sort of part of our culture. And the other part as well is that it is the separation between people who have a substance use disorder and that is causing harms to themselves and to society and people who are just using substances. And some of the latest discussions I was sort of reading were saying that realistically, probably about 95% of people who use illicit substances do so very occasionally in a very safe manner, no harms to themselves or others. So we really, when we're discussing these sort of, um, you know, people who are using drugs, we focus on a very small part where it's much more reflective of, of a much larger group. And I think we definitely saw that borne out during the discussions around pill testing in Australia. Um, there were some really good nuanced discussions in that about the, you know, someone who might go to a festival and take a uh, you know, small amount of MDMA or even a large amount of MDMA compared to someone who will go and drink 30 alcoholic beverages and then need their stomach pumped. Between the two, what are the comparative risks? And we needed to separate the legality from the actual medical sort of harm of it. So to go back to your original sort of uh, question, I think people use substances for a variety of reasons, can be recreationally or it can be as a coping strategy um, or to do other things. Um, and that's probably uh, one of the main motivators. And then in some cases, people might then no longer be able to control their use of substances in a way that they want to. And that's where really we start to look at ways to support them and at harm minimization, because now it has become something that needs to, to be supported and addressed, just like any other medical condition. Absolutely. I love that because I think the judgment's really taken away, isn't it? Because it, it comes down to healthcare. That's what it is, isn't it? It's not about kind of casting judgment or, or making assertions um, about people. It's really about helping them and trying to identify what the issue is and why they might be utilising these substances in the way they are. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And we've seen discussions in the US about this where, you know, if you've addressed housing issues and job issues and gotten people mental health counselling, their use of substances decreased to a level where it wasn't harmful to themselves. And that, you know, was tremendous. And we've seen the reverse where we've forced people to go into rehabilitation programs and then they're more likely to um, go back to problematic substance use um, because we haven't solved the underlying reason why 
or the reverse. We've seen people who are recreationally using substances and they're being forced to go into rehabilitation services or they're being treated as if they have some sort of problem. Um, and I would say personally, you know, if you're someone who has a couple of beers on a weekend and then you don't drink during the week, how is that any different to someone who maybe smokes some cannabis on the weekend but then doesn't during the week? Um, we really need to focus on the on the outcomes of that and if it is a problem to their lives or causing issues within society. Essential, knowledgeable, indispensable. Your pharmacist. You mentioned before too that there's increasing levels of harm coming from abusing prescription medications. What are some of the common things that we're seeing in practice? Sure. So, yeah, as, as a pharmacist, we see this um, quite often. I keep a bit of an eye on this. We have seen a, a significant increase over the years in uh, the prescriptions for opioid analgesics. So those are painkillers uh, which are derived from the same class of um molecules as heroin, which is the opioid poppy. So they might be synthetic or they might be naturally occurring. And they've really been the mainstay of pain relief uh, for many, many years. So we've seen a, a large increase in the prescribing of this, which some have attributed to increasing chronic pain, um, other sort of conditions, um, or also people maybe seeking help for pain more often. But that means that we're seeing a larger volume of people exposed to these medicines and more of these medicines coming out uh, into the community. Uh, on top of that, we're then starting to see the uh, effects of that. So there have been an increased number of people who have been dying um, and their deaths are related uh, to opioids. So they have opioids in the system when they die. It's worth noting in a significant number of those, it's a multi-drug death. So there are also benzodiazepines in place. There may be alcohol, there may be other substances. But really within this, what's becoming very apparent and quite interesting are that many of these people were using um were taking prescription opioids in a correct manner for their pain. And then over a period of time, uh, they were then no longer able to um, manage their use of that. And we saw the use increase and increase. There has been some arguments um, about whether that was uh, adequately enough controlled by health professionals or not. Um, that's a bit of a discussion going on. But at the end of the day, we've seen people who saw escalating uses of opioid analgesics, and that's led to some fatalities. And we saw particularly with uh, high strength fentanyl patches, the criteria to access them changed a little bit and we saw a massive spike in their use. And then there have now been efforts to try to decrease the availability of that by really restricting the criteria. And most recently, the Australian government has uh, restricted the criteria on access to uh, a lot of long acting high dose uh, opioid analgesics for specific conditions. And it's important to, to say that that's not saying that anyone's done the wrong thing, but more so that they noticed that there was there's a need for more oversight and more control into this area. And those are the steps that are being taken now. But the fact remains that um, we have seen an increase in the use of prescription opioids uh, for non-medical reasons in the community. And many people who are coming onto harm minimisation services for opioid uh, related uh, substance use disorders. So previously it used to be a majority of people using heroin. Uh, we're seeing more and more people who were using, uh, taking prescription opioids and previously even over-the-counter codeine, which people, your listeners might remember, was uh, rescheduled a couple of years ago for that exact reason, that there wasn't as much medical benefit as we thought and we were seeing increasing risks of harm to the community. So we appropriately um, changed how that the access to that worked. 
That's right. And you've probably seen in your practice too, Sam, when these changes kind of occur, people do get really upset, don't they? Because it changes how easily they can access some of these medications and, and people that feel that they're doing the right thing feel that they're being, you know, punished for a small proportion of society. But like you say, it's really about safety, isn't it? And it's, and it's giving pharmacists and other health professionals more of an opportunity to intervene and have a conversation about, you know, use and what else could be actually utilised to actually help with pain or whatever it else it is that they're actually treating as well. Absolutely. And the, the key differentiation that, that this sort of highlighted, and I think uh, the medical community and even the community at large are starting to pick up really nicely, is this, this idea of the difference between dependence and addiction. So quite often we used to always say, people, you know, oh, you're addicted to painkillers. And it's like, well, if someone's taking painkillers uh, in order to go to work and function and live their life, you know, is that an addiction is that comparable to other situations mm -hmm. and from a, a biophysical sort of side these medications are quite um, they do build up a dependence model your brain will get used to them and the brain will require higher and higher doses in order to um, for it to still have its effect interestingly for opioids um, one of the unique characteristics is that the more that we use actually uh, it can cause more pain it makes you more receptive to pain so it's a condition called opioid induced hyperanalgesia lovely long name but basically what that means is that there's a real risk of this negative feedback that we take more medicines to release uh, to reduce pain but that makes us more susceptible to pain which means we need to take more medicines and eventually people who are taking 10 times the dose that you or i would take actually don't get anywhere near the pain relief that you or i would get from our lower doses and on the, on the converse side is that someone, uh, when we talk about addiction, we're really talking about that um, harm to their health and to their community. And a lot of the uh, interventions at the moment are about trying to get people uh, who might be becoming dependent on painkillers and making sure that they're being managed well enough that that then doesn't uh, spiral out of control and lead into these other harms that we talked about. And that requires, as you've mentioned, some really non-stigmatising language and health professionals to really have those honest discussions and say, hey, there are real concerns with this medicine. I'm not saying that you have them or I'm concerned specifically with you, but we need to have these conversations so that you can be aware of how to, to manage those risks. And a lot of people in, in my practice I've seen had legitimate pain issues and their um, doses of pain relieving medicines were increased and increased and increased. And then all of a sudden someone's decided that's not appropriate and they're being told that they're an addict and that they need to stop and that we need to cut these back. And the research has shown really well that that's, that's an incredibly dangerous thing to do, uh, both for people's mental health and actually for uh, precipitating um, how else they get their pain relief. So in the US, a big driver of uh, their opioid uh, epidemic that they have, which is the increase in, in deaths from uh, fentanyl um, uh, in, in the US, has come from people who uh, all of a sudden couldn't access their prescription painkillers they were taking for legitimate pain reasons. So the natural extension of that is that they then went and sourced it illicitly. And then going back to, to what I mentioned before, that's where the quality control goes out the window. and We don't know what people are getting. Um, and that's where we, we know the risk is insurmountable to the person and to the community. So, yeah, you're right. It is, you know, with the increase of those ones, it's about having those good discussions. And I, th I think it's really positive that we're seeing people engage with that. And they, they take this seriously. They go, hey, look, I'm, I want pain relief, but at the same stage, what strategies can I do in order to manage um, the use of my pain relieving medicines in the most appropriate way? And what sort of services are available if I do believe that 
I'm, I'm starting to notice that I'm, I'm taking risky behaviours. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in pharmacy, we, we see this a lot, don't we? we? We start to see where, you know, prescription doses change and increase. And, um, you know, we might see that, you know, perhaps someone's not coping as well. So what are some of the options that are available in community pharmacy um, that can deal with illicit drug use? So I know there's a product called naloxone that's available too, and has become a lot more freely available. So what can you tell us about that? Sure. So within pharmacy, there, there's a range of um, programs that we can do to help people if they are using uh, illicit substances. We'll talk about those first because then I think there's a subsection we can sort of talk about the prescription ones because, as I mentioned, that is that is a large, a large or growing category, and it's an area that pharmacists particularly can can help in. But as far as illicit substance use for things like um, you know if someone's uh, smoking cannabis, for example, harm minimization to the person, there's not quite a lot of that we need to sort of necessarily worry about with cannabis, its, it's risk for overdose is, is quite low. Um, but pharmacists are also able to educate people and make them more aware of um, polydrug issues. So saying, hey, look, you know, yes, cannabis, from the data that we have, it's, it um, has a low risk of overdose. But if you're combining that with other substances, it might lead to other sort of issues or just be aware of your uh, risks if you're driving or operating machinery, things like that. But um, when we start to talk about other substances where we might be um, injecting things, so uh, people who might be injecting methamphetamine, injecting heroin, people using performance and image enhancing drugs, um, in pharmacies, we actually have uh, needles uh, and syringe exchange type programs on offer. So we can um, sell people clean injecting equipment, which includes um, a needle, a sharp, some alcohol swabs. The container itself becomes a safe disposal unit because, again, thinking about the risk to the community, we don't want exposed needles um, lying around where people might come into contact with them. And quite often, they'll also then have information for other services that are in the area. For naloxone, it's, it's a really interesting development. So this is particularly in response to the increase in opioid-related deaths that we saw overseas, and then we started to see the risk of in Australia. Um, and basically what naloxone is, is that it um, has the same sort of shape as these opioid painkillers inside the body, but rather than relieving pain, suppressing the respiratory rate, uh, suppressing the brain's functions, making people more likely to, to overdose, it actually blocks all of those. So the really interesting thing with naloxone is that it's more likely to bind to those receptors than those opioid painkillers. So that if your body has a preference, it's going to choose the naloxone over the painkiller and more so that it'll actually even kick the painkiller out. And what's really helpful for that is that it means that if someone's having an overdose, they've taken um, a substance that they weren't aware that had uh, an opioid in it. Maybe they're on some prescription opioids and they've taken too many or they've mixed it with benzodiazepines or alcohol. If the person is administered naloxone, works for about 15 minutes or so, it displaces all of those. It brings the person's breathing back um, into regularity. It brings them back out of unconsciousness and that buys really valuable time to seek help. So physically, it's a life-saving medicine, and we see that people who are in um, in an overdose situation, we could administer naloxone, they'll be revived, and in that 15 minutes, 20 minutes or so, if it's only a single dose available, by that stage, an ambulance has arrived, and they can provide ongoing care, or that person can then be taken to a medical facility themselves for care. 
in Australia, they did two things. One, they made it that this medicine was no longer only available on prescription, that you can get it from your pharmacy. And the second is that they also made it that it's uh, covered under the pharmaceutical benefits system, which means that if you are a person on a concession or a pension card, uh, you can actually get a prescription for it from your doctor and it will only cost $6.60, which is an incredibly low price to pay for saving your life. And we also do know, uh, unfortunately, statistically, people from a lower socioeconomic background are more likely to use illicit substances. So therefore, this is a really great step the government's taken because it's said to those people who then might be on disability supports, aged care pensions, uh, on unemployment benefits, that they can get this medicine cheaply and they can get it from the pharmacy of their choosing as well and that there's no restriction about who can prescribe it. It was originally available as an injectable product, which is, um, you know, can be sort of a bit daunting for some people, but we do know that people who are injecting drugs already have that sort of skill set. But a new one uh, product has come to the market, which is an intranasal spray, uh, which has been used in the United States for a long time. So it's no different than taking a spray of something for a cold and flu, just sprays up the nose and then that's it. You've saved a life and you can get it over the counter. And over the counter, again, it's probably still about $40 or $50, um, which uh, comparing to the price of buying um, a, a single sessions of, of an illicit drug is, is relatively cheap. They've got good shelf lives. They're nice and stable. You can keep them on them. Um, and we've started to even trial some free access to that in some states as well. So it's a really game changer in that regard for illicit substances. But uh, one of the major growth areas is in people who are just taking high doses of prescribed pain relief. So I've got patients who are on large doses of um, opioid analgesics, um, and they might also occasionally drink alcohol, or maybe they might smoke cannabis, or they might take some benzodiazepines. They're the people who I've been saying, look, you should probably have some naloxone because unfortunately I personally have had patients who have died from an opioid overdose, not because they've taken too much intentionally, but because they've suddenly become unwell. unwell. So they're on these high doses. They all of a sudden get a cold and flu or get a really bad infection that suppresses the body's immune system. Everything gets out of whack. Now their dose they were safe on is too much and they've been 45 minutes, an hour away from care their partner at home hasn't known what to do and they've, they've died of an opioid overdose. So this is a really useful way to get that into the hands of people who are, in, uh, uh, who are at risk and in a way that can be done really confidential, confidentially too because, you know, you can go to any pharmacy and ask them to get it. So it doesn't even have to be your regular pharmacy. You can go to one who you don't know, they've got nothing to do with you, your family doesn't go to, and you can say, hey, look, I think I need this. Could you get it for me? Or if you have it, can I purchase one, please? It's not recorded into any government systems. There's, it's, it's really nice and private, which is great. So that's a really good thing with naloxone. Um, more broadly, in pharmacies, we have um, a couple of other programs. The main one that people might be aware of is opioid pharmacotherapy, which is commonly referred to as the methadone program. And the basic idea of that is that if someone is using a, um, an opioid-type substance, so it can be prescription pain medicines, it could have been over-the-counter codeine was an issue for a while, or it could be heroin, um, they can go and use a, a medicine, either methadone or buprenorphine, which is more it has a similar structure and does the same job but it actually causes less euphoria and it also protects you from if you were to take that substance on top again so really it's for people who go look i need 
this medicine in my life in order to help me manage my my life and seek help and continue my daily function but i don't want to have to buy it from the street i don't want to have to worry about where i'm going to go get money to do this and have run the risk of an unknown sort of uh, safety of it I want something that just lets me live my life and also protects me if for some reason, you know, I did use something later on. Um, and they're really, it's a really great program, I think. And Australia has been a really good uptaker of that, but we can do a lot more because as part of this, there's counseling involved. And I think that's, that's a way we could case manage people. So we have access to naloxone for an immediate risk for people who are using, um, opioids particularly over the longer term and they're worried about the effects on themselves and their family and that they want to potentially move away from that but don't want to just quit cold turkey which can be quite problematic there's the opioid pharmacotherapy program but then finally if people are using anything that they're getting from their pharmacy be it a painkiller benzodiazepines i've had some people who have uh, developed a uh, a substance use issue with antidepressants, even though those medicines themselves won't cause euphoria, but they've, they've developed a, a relationship with them they consider unhealthy. They can always ask their pharmacist and their doctor to help them out with what we call stage supply. And that's basically where instead of giving you a month at one time, we might give you enough for a week. You know, if it's particularly problematic for you, we can arrange it so that you can pick up every three days or so. And it's a chance to just come in, touch base with us, see how you're going. We can give you a small amount. And what I really like about this program is particularly for people who are taking large amounts of pain, pain relieving medicines, is that by enrolling in these programs, it also signals to your prescriber that you're trying to manage it as best you can. And quite often I found that's protective from the doctor having a knee-jerk reaction because if that doctor goes on holidays and a new doctor comes into the clinic and they go, I'm not going to prescribe you this, it's a, you know, there's a massive risk here. That's a very traumatic situation for someone who's just trying to live their life. They're trying to work. They're trying to care for their family. Whereas my experience has been is that if they're in a stage supply program, when the new doctor comes in or something happens, they go, okay, well, I'm going to keep doing what was previously happening because I know that the pharmacist is supervising and is helping you and that relationship exists. Um, and I've particularly had a couple of patients that's worked really well. Um, and it means that the doctor can also forward plan their script writing and how they're arranging it. Um, and it's just, just having that, that little bit of an extra chat. And, you know, if we're then talking about reducing the amount over a long term, the pharmacist is providing it to you. We're keeping those records with you. And then that makes a really nice history that you can take to any specialist or any other doctor and say, look, this is how I've been going on my plan. This is when I've needed more, when I've needed less. How can we do that? Because we're all working to that singular goal, which is that you as the patient are living the life that you want to live in the healthiest, safest way. Yeah, I love that indispensable advice for you we've seen such a, a great increase in these programs that do just they take away that judgment they offer that care and that that touch point which i think is really good it, it really kind of enhances that that ongoing relationship and and it's really pleasing to see i'm sure you've had this too where you've had seen people that have come on to those some of those programs and have come off and they're back in society they're contributing they're you know they're, they're, they get a wonderful outcome as a result I completely agree. And the thing with those programs too, and I think that leads to a positive outcome is we've moved away from this idea that, you know, the goal of these programs is to get you to stop 
taking substances completely. That's obviously one of the safest ways to avoid the harms of substances is to not use them, but it completely ignores the reason why people are using them and how they're using them. And there's been a bit of a shift um, over the years and I'm seeing that momentum growing that I think is really, really positive for everyone involved because it can say to people that like, look, you might be taking a very, very small amount of methadone, for example, and that might be something you're gonna do for the rest of your life just like someone might take a small amount of uh, an antidepressant for the rest of their life because of some trauma historically. That's how they're managing. They're doing it in a safe and responsible way. And then that's how it's being facilitated. And we can see an expansion of people that then they don't need to come to the pharmacy every day. They can come in once every couple of days, once every week, two weeks. Um, there's now a long acting injectable form. So we can look at people getting access to that, but it's saying to them that there is this medicine you know, be it something that's prescribed or previously you were filling that illicitly that you need, let's work out how to do that in the safest way and in the most destigmatizing way. Mm. And I think that's really coming across well. And that's, I think that's, that's, I've seen so many positive cases of people who are now in a really good space and they feel supported so they can go and find employment. They can start to um, address other reasons why they might be using substances and it protects them from future issues because they've got that security blanket behind them they know that should they lose their job they don't don't have to worry about finding money to find drugs because they've got their medicine they know that if they're going through a really traumatic time with their partner and there's a lot of extra stress they're not going to run out of their medicine because that's being supplied and being looked after for them and i think that's you know that's that's really good and we see that in we see models where that doesn't happen and they're consistently inferior to providing people un like non-stigmatized unjudgmental care and treating people like people. I often say to my interns and to other pharmacists, what would you do if this was your sister or your mother or your grandmother? Um, I've, I've had that experience myself and I know other pharmacists who have. And that's what it comes down to is how would you want to be treated if it was you going through this? Because I can tell you now the line between everyone being a happy, functional adult and relying on a substance to get through your day is incredibly thin and a lot closer than people think it is. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned there, obviously, that um, you can get help from your pharmacy and, and from other health professionals as well. What are some other places people can go if, if they're having the problem and they may not feel confident about talking to friends and family? Or where could friends and family go if they feel that, you know, some, the person they love is not coping very well? Sure. So I think that's the way I've always envisioned, envisioned this is in two ways. One, there's what sort of sources of information can you get out there? Quite often a simple Google search is quite good. It will give you a bit of an idea. But then it's about working out what is the best uh, source of support. And I think that comes down to who do you really trust in that space? So even if you're a friend or family member, if you want to know more about a program, come and speak to the pharmacist. I, I always say, look, just come and say, look, I know someone who's got this. Could you tell me more? Your GP is a really good source of information. And there's also a lot of community support groups. So each state and territory will have an alcohol and other drug department. And prior to working in this space, I thought they were just very you know, clinical and they're focusing on this. But they employ nurses as community support officers and they have caseworkers and they have this incredible open door policy of anyone can just call them and say, I need help or can you give information about where I can get help for someone else and they will give you everything you need. 
Um, there's really fantastic uh, phone support lines like Lifeline or particularly if anyone listening um, is a child or adolescent, Kids Helpline is actually fantastic. A lot of their staff are counsellors. Um, they're aware of all of this, uh, these sort of issues. Headspace can be quite good. To me, it's anywhere that it has a focus on mental health because that's uh, quite often underpinning this. Mm. As far as other sort of more established programs, uh, again, the pharmacies are quite a good place to do it, but there are also things like needle and syringe exchange programs a lot of states offer. Um, and that's just a way of saying, look, I'm injecting drugs. I have no intention in changing that behaviour, but I recognise I don't want to share injecting equipment with other people and I want to have a safe place to return that. And you can receive free injecting equipment. And Australia has been a world leader in that. And that's fantastic. And we've seen the expansion of that in, in uh, Victoria, particularly around safer places to, to consume those substances. Other great sources of information that I personally refer people onto um, is quite often uh, any sort of community groups as well. Bizarrely enough, I do a lot with the politicians up here and a lot of the political officers are tied in. So quite often it can be just going to your local member and saying who in the area can support me with this because they tend to know who's doing what. Mm. I've got a couple of people who uh, have a really strong faith belief and they quite often will ask um, someone in their church or in their uh, mosque about where to seek help. But for me, the most important thing is regardless where you're seeking help, make sure there's a health professional involved mm -hmm. because to me, that's the real part because what you're dealing with is a health condition. It, there's a mental health, there's physical health. We're dealing with the role of substances in your body. You need to have someone who's got some sort of medical training involved in there because that's where you're going to know you've got that, that really protective group behind you. And again, that's why I find phone counsellors quite good. Uh, people who call Lifeline, Lifeline will then put them in touch with a support service who's got that nice mix where you can get mental health support social support but also medical support um, and that's also a good way to reflect is that if you're seeking help or information from say a pharmacist or a GP but you're feeling that they're not addressing those other areas of the social support you can treat those differently you don't have to tell them why you need help with employment or why you need counseling because that's already been managed by someone else mm. um, so there's a lot of there's a lot of information out there um, and I would say just go with whoever you trust in that medical area and that might be you know, for me, hopefully it's your pharmacist, you've got a good relationship with them, but it might even just be your GP and but saying to the people listening, you don't need to, to even really mention why. Just say, look, I would like information about where to get support around opioid overuse. And, you know, if you don't want to discuss that and they say, well, why do you want to know that? Well, you're in your rights to say, I'm not going to tell you why I need to know that. Just point me in the direction, please. Absolutely. And we might put a couple of links in for kind of some, you know, online spaces and some of those numbers as well that you've mentioned so that people can access that if they like. Essential, knowledgeable, indispensable. Your pharmacist. Finally then, Sam, what are your five indispensable tips about harm minimisation in this space? Sure. So for me, the um, probably the first one really comes down to the fact that harm minimisation is exactly uh, what we're saying in that. It's it's not about this idea that we're trying to get you to, you to stop using substances or that we're really trying to... Um, get you to to conform to a way that you know other people are sort of doing things it's about just working out the safest way of doing something that um you're already doing but just in the least risky way so really it's not about abstinence it's doing something in the safest way possible um, that might be abstinence but most often it's not 
The second is really to know what's available. So even if you don't think you want to use it yet, it's easier to access later if you already know what's out there. So if you're using um, substances recreationally, for example, you know, you might go out, you know, every second weekend and take some ecstasy and have a great time. But then you're finding later on, you know, that really, you know, Friday night's becoming Friday night and Saturday night, you know, two pills is becoming eight. Uh, it's starting to affect your relationship with your friends and things like this, or maybe using during the week. And you're noticing that that's an issue. Your first step is might be to think, well, where can I get help for that? Whereas if earlier on you're going, okay, look, I'm going to take a list of substances. I'm actually going to spend five or 10 minutes and just work out what are the services near me? Because later on, when I'm feeling more anxious about my use, I'm going to be in a much better space to seek help if I already know where I want to go or who I want to go and talk about this. So really the second one is to know what's out there already, um, particularly if it's something like, uh, as we mentioned before, with naloxone. You know, if you're going to be uh, recreationally taking uh, any opioid or you're taking a lot of opioid analgesics, that to me is one of the, the simplest one of know what it is, where to get it if you wanted to get it. The third indispensable tip would be to build relationships with the services that you you might use for harm minimization. So if you're thinking, you know, okay, um, uh, a good example is I've got patients who are using uh, performance and image enhancing drugs, so steroids, and I encourage them. I said, look, get to know your GP and know your pharmacist because if you want to know more information about where to get help or um, about ways to do things safer, if you've really got that personal relationship with them, it's a lot easier to leverage that later. So if you've got a GP that you're like, hey, look, I, I trust him or her, like, you know, she's, she's really, she meets me at the level that I'm at and I can sort of feel comfortable talking about things, that's really good to have. And then similarly with the pharmacist, if you're going, hey, look, I use this one pharmacy more often, um, they're the ones who really provide information or I feel that I can ask them um, about things, that's a great first step to have. And I think that to me is the simplest form of harm minimization is saying, look, I'm, I am at an at-risk group because I'm using illicit substances. I'm just going to take the time to make sure I've got a little support network around me should I want to use it. Mm -hmm. The fourth uh, tip would be that if you don't feel like you're being supported by those relationships, say so. Uh, quite often I hear stories about people going, oh, you know, I, I sort of have to do this and the pharmacist doesn't treat me very well or, you know, this GP, I just don't feel comfortable talking to them or me and the counsellor don't really have a rapport. Say it. We're all health professionals. I feel absolutely no anger towards someone if they say, look, I just... I just don't really gel with you. I don't know what it is. I'm just not really feeling this. Could you refer me to someone else? I'm more than happy to do that because my goal as a health professional is to help the person who, who needs help. Mm. And I've had some great examples of where people, particularly with counsellors, have had a relationship and they just sort of felt they weren't really being supported mm. and, you know, took a big guts to come out and say, well, look, can I, can I speak to someone else? And quite often that counsellor, it's not the first time they've heard of it and they know their style of practice and they'll refer them to someone who's got a very different style. Um, I quite like building relationships with my patients. I'm very personal. I try to talk a lot with them. And I've had some people who are, uh, taking, who are using the opioid pharmacotherapy program who don't like that. They just want a very business relationship. And they've said to me and they said, look, you know, I don't really want to talk. I just want to come in and take my medicine and go. And I'm fine. And then for my other, you know, nine people out of 10, I still have that relationship. And for that one, as soon as it's ready, it's just there. They pick it up, they take it, they do what they need to do, and then they go. We don't say any words to each other. 
I don't feel offended. That's perfectly fine. If that's how they want to access their care, that's how they want to access their care. I'm just happy I can be part of it. Yeah. The fifth and final one, and, and really I think is one of the main ones to take home, is it's all about small steps. So whether you're occasionally using illicit substances or it's an issue that you, you really want to address or you're noticing that your use of pain-relieving medicines is increasing, just do tiny little things each time to make it a bit safer. So if you're, for example, uh, going to, uh, if you're smoking a fair amount of cannabis and you're suddenly getting it from a new source or you're doing it with a new group of people, don't just go and do it exactly how you used to because you're in a new environment. Mm -hmm. And there is some evidence to say that in a lot of cases for overdoses, it's not necessarily about the, um, the strength or the potency of the substance. It's about the environment and the situation that it was done and the anxiety and uh, things like this. So just really recognizing, hey, there is a bit of risk here. What's something small that I could do? Could I, you know, make sure that someone else is using it before me if if it's the first time I've done it? Could I try to go, well, look, if I'm not going to get it from someone that I know and trust, I'm not going to use it at this stage. Maybe it might be, hopefully, we start seeing it rolled out more, is that there's uh, some sort of testing facility available for the substances that you're going to use. If it's a prescription medicine going, well, look, you know, I'm just going to keep a track of when I take my medicines or I'm just going to keep a count of when I come in or I'm just going to ask the pharmacist to keep an eye on it for me. That's it. Just coming in and saying, hey, look, I'm, I'm aware of the risks of taking this medicine um, and that I'm at a risk of developing a dependence, which might lead to issues later. Could you do me a favour and when I pick it up, just tell me how early, like, ever I'm earlier than you expected. That's it. That's all I want to know. Um, you know, it might be just a bit of planning beforehand, you know, with high risk activities and particularly for people who aren't even using the substances. If someone you know or love is, um, say, for example, using prescription opioids in, a, in a, a recreational manner or they're using an injectable drug, recognizing, hey, that's my loved one. I'm going to go and access naloxone and I'm going to like ask my pharmacist to teach me how to use it. I'm just going to have it in the house. That's it. I'm going to buy a $40 insurance policy and it's sitting in my house when I need to use it. Um, or it could be, you know, if you're traveling interstate, you're going, okay, I'm going to go uh, down to the Gold Coast. I'm potentially going to uh, buy and use some cocaine. Uh, I've read somewhere that in the US people are adulterating cocaine with fentanyl or something like that. So I'm going to just teach myself what are the signs of an overdose? What are, you know, where could I get naloxone if I was there so that if someone, one of my friends does that or I do that and I notice that's that, I can say immediately, go and get me help. Because particularly in Australia and the AMBOs that I know, it's, it's you know, no one's interested in, in persecuting people because they've had a, a drug poisoning. It's all about saving lives and reaching out early. And that's what we saw with the naloxone program, particularly in the US, is people were so much more um, uh, willing to seek help because they were able to help themselves at that moment and go, okay, we've reversed this overdose, now let's go and do it. And just the education, I, I think people who are, you know, if they purchase methamphetamine or cocaine and then they smoke it or inject it and then all of a sudden they start having an opioid overdose, they're just not sure what to do because it's never crossed their mind. So it's just taking that small step of going, I'm going to educate myself about the potential risks and then if I still continue with this behaviour, maybe I have a plan or I've got a bit of an idea so at least I know where to seek help. So for me, the five main tips are, are really about making sure that we recognise that it's not about abstinence, um, that it's really about knowing what's out there and how you can access it, building the relationships with the people or with those services, 
and then knowing that um, it just a little bit each time can can really help protect you. Absolutely. Thank you, Sam. That was really insightful. And I think a lot of people will have learnt a lot knowing more about what is out there. The fact that Australia is really lucky. We have lots of programs and services that are available. And I think the other really big take home from me is if, you know, you're, you don't feel that you're getting care and you're the person that's, that's, you know, looking at changing your use of illicit substances and wanting support, make sure it's someone that you want. And, or if it's not change it, right. There's, there's mm. other, there's heaps of health professionals out there, some with more experience than others in this space. Um, and so it's really important to find someone that, that will gel with you and can really support support you and and help you do what you want to do and the good thing is just by looking for care doesn't mean you have to take it up no one's going to force you to do anything Um, but if you know it's there then you know it's an option for when you want it so i think there's there's you know knowledge is half the battle absolutely great conclusion thanks so much sam thanks anna Indispensable contains general medicine and health advice and is not intended to be a substitute for professional individual medical advice. We endeavour to ensure it is accurate and up to date. However, we can't guarantee that it will always apply to you. Always seek the guidance of your pharmacist or other qualified health professional with any questions you may have regarding your health or a medical condition. This episode is brought to you by me, the Indispensable Pharmacist. Don't forget to subscribe to Indispensable and leave a review so we can help more people. Look us up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn by searching for Farm Online. That's P-H-A-R-M Online. I'd love to hear your suggestions for the next topic to be covered on Indispensable.